Today's message is avoiding the trap of offense. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 17. We're going to get there in just a minute. I do have a few things I want to say before we get there. But avoiding the trap of offense. In relationships, it's very easy to say the wrong thing. And as I mentioned last week, if you're married, you know exactly that that is the truth. It's easy to say the wrong thing. It's also easy to say the right thing the wrong way. When you say the right thing, somebody says, I don't like your tone. So it's easy to say the right thing the wrong way. And, you know, sometimes we have unpopular opinions. Sometimes we have an opinion that's totally out there, and, and uh, nobody else shares that opinion, but we have that opinion. And sometimes we uh, folks just want to say something and watch the world burn. They just want to say something on Facebook or say something on social media or say something outlandish and just watch people go crazy. Um, communication is an imperfect way of transmitting information from one person to the next. Lecture and preaching is one of the least effective means of communication. The, the reality is the majority of what you, uh, most of you will not take much away from a lecture or a sermon unless you're keeping notes. And I do encourage you, in your bulletin there is a note sheet so you can at least take this away um, and, and you can follow along and, and stick with me. But uh, as careful as you might be when you're speaking to somebody, uh, communicating to them is a flawed message, a flawed way of communication because two imperfect people are involved in that conversation. And preaching is no different. It's one imperfect person talking to a group of imperfect people, sorry to tell you that if you didn't already know, about a perfect and holy God. It is reading God's word and trying to discover what we can learn from it. We're expected to do our best. We're expected to handle God's word rightly and not color his word with our opinions. And that's a huge challenge because we're all incredibly opinionated on all sorts of things. But it's my responsibility to guard what I say and to start with God's word and work outward rather than starting with inward anger and frustration and get God's word to agree with what I want to say. So let me begin my message this morning with an apology. I know that I have offended some of you by either statements I've made from the pulpit or statements I've made online. Oh, some of these are entire sermons that have offended you. Uh, it is never my intent to offend someone. My intention is to call people back to God's righteous standard for life and for conduct for believers. However, I do know that some statements and messages have created offense in the lives of people that I dearly love and care about. Last week in my message, I made at least one statement that was the proverbial shot across the bow against people who have recently criticized me, criticized my ministry, and criticized my messages. Instead of responding graciously and lovingly to them, I'm sure I caused even more offense through some statements that I made last week. For that, I am sorry. 
Sometimes I get it right, sometimes I get it wrong. And last week had a lot of good content, but there was some, some statements that I made in that message that were intended to provoke. So I ask for your forgiveness, and I appreciate your grace because I know that I have done better, I can do better, and I will do better. This job is incredibly difficult because perfection is expected at all times. One wrong statement, one wrong tone, one wrong message, and it creates the opportunity for offense in the lives of people. I don't want to respond to a person's legitimate offense by making it worse. In his book, which I highly recommend, The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, he wrote, Jesus offended some people by obeying his father, but he never caused an offense in order to assert his own rights. And I fear that is what I have done in some past statements, and so I ask for you for your forgiveness. I love all of you. I love our racial, ethnic, political, and personal diversity. This church demonstrates the diversity of heaven. It is the most beautiful thing that people from so many different backgrounds and ideologies can come together and worship the same God and be in unity. And I don't want to be the cause of that disunity. So please accept my apology and rest assured that I will try harder to allow Scripture to speak for itself and not what I want it to say. Let's look at Luke chapter 17, verse 1. And if you're a newcomer and you don't know anything I'm talking about, hi, I'm Pastor Jason. This is a clean slate. Ignore everything I just said because I didn't offend you because you don't know what I'm talking about. And I love you, newcomer. Luke chapter 17, verse 1, we're going to read out of the ESV. It says, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. So the title of my message today is Avoiding the Trap of Offense. In this scripture, uh, Luke 17, 1, it's a really good to remember. The Greek rendering of this verse says it this way. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Now the word for stumbling block, if we were going to translate it a little bit better, it's, it's the word that is used to describe the trigger of a trap. So just imagine there's a trap to catch an animal, like a box, and it's held up by a stick that has the little prongs on it to hold the trap in place. And that trigger, that little piece of wood that gets tricked, allows the trap to fall on the animal. And so that word stumbling block or temptation to sin is really the Greek word for that trigger. Once the stick gets triggered, the trap falls down and prevents the animal from escaping. Jesus told us that stumbling blocks and offenses are sure to come. It's inevitable. We're going to do something wrong. We're going to say something wrong. We're going to be offended. How many of you have ever been offended in church? You're lying. Come on now. I mean, come on, don't a lot of times 
people leave the church they were at because they got offended by something somebody did. Otherwise, you would have never left the church unless you moved or whatever. But the vast majority of times, we come to a church because we left an old church. And because we got offended by something somebody did. They didn't shake my hand. The pastor doesn't even know my name. He never said hello to me. I handed him a donut, and he said, no, thanks, I'm on a diet. And I don't care. Take my donut. We get offended, by, and sometimes it's irrational. It makes no sense. And other times it is legit. Someone said or did something or the pastor didn't give you approval for the, the program or the ministry you wanted to start or, or whatever. It could be anything. It could be legitimate or illegitimate. But offenses are sure to come because we come to church with the expectation that we're going to receive fill in the blank, and then if it doesn't happen, they didn't sing the song I like. They never sing the songs I like. They, whatever, it could, anything can offend us at any time, especially when we have a chip on our shoulder or we're looking for a way to get offended. And sometimes we can be that way. But Jesus gave us a strongly worded rebuke in Luke chapter 7, verse 2, to anyone who causes one of these little ones to sin. We, we assume that means little ones physically, children, but also we need to be aware of young immature believers and I don't mean immature in a negative way I just mean immature because they just they're not mature seasoned fully discipled believers in Christ and so we need to be aware that sometimes we can do things that cause a young believer in the faith to sin Luke chapter 17 verses 3 and 4 Jesus said this he said pay attention to yourselves pay attention to yourself if your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the first thing Jesus tells us in this passage is pay attention to yourselves. That's the first blank in your sheet, in your bulletin. Pay attention to yourself. We must be aware of when our emotions are getting the better of us. Everybody has strong feelings about one thing or another. We talk either in person or we talk online with people, and we can easily let our emotions get the better of us, especially when, se when someone says something confrontational. It's easy to get offended and react to that. Just yesterday, I was on Facebook, and it's none of you. Y'all didn't do anything wrong. I don't want you to feel like I'm about to say something, and, ooh, he's calling somebody out. Cross, I got a sponsored ad from Crossway, which is a, a Christian publisher. And so um, they were, they were uh, spotlighting a new Bible that they're going to sell. And so, you know, folks, when you read the comments, you're just really taking your life in your own hands at this point. I mean, it, it's, it can be great, but typically it cannot be great. And so somebody said, is this KJV? And I, res I replied, no, it's... English Standard Version. Crossway publishes the ESV version. So I was just trying to be helpful. And then somebody said, oh, great, another copy of a useless book. Arr! And I thought, I thought I really would like to correct them. 
But then I thought, I'm clearly not dealing with a believer. So I'm dealing with someone who has trolled this post in an effort to say something provocative. And I can reply in my flesh, or I can pray for that person. Now, what do we oftentimes do? Our default is not to pray for the person who is clearly poking us with the stick. They're provoking. They're like, come on, Christians, prove me right that all Christians are hypocrites and etc. He's already made up his mind that in his mind, the Bible is a useless book. And so for me to reply, bro, why are you even commenting on this page? It's for a Bible. If you don't want to read the Bible, then don't read the Bible. Why are you causing your blood pressure to rise, everybody else's blood pressure to rise? Instead, I just said, Lord, please help this individual. And please help me not to reply. Because when there's somebody wrong on the Internet, I feel like it's my God-given duty to reply. And that is a fruitless effort. The Internet is full of wrong people. So when somebody says something confrontational, it's easy to get offended by it, especially when they take a personal shot against you. I don't like being criticized, hence my message last week. I don't like people criticizing me, my messages, my motivations, my personal life. I don't like it, and I don't know anybody that does. When we are criticized, our flesh immediately rises up. We want to defend ourselves. We want to justify our actions. We think of all the cutting and sharp comments that we can make back to that person that offended us. We lay in bed at night unable to fall asleep because we're thinking of all the ways we can just shred their argument, but it's fruitless. Offense is a trap set by the enemy to create division in the body of Christ. The reality is that that person's offense may be thoroughly justified. I may have wronged them. I may have said or done something that was wrong. I must govern my heart, my mind, my mouth to ensure that I don't make it worse. Because when somebody is offended, and sometimes it's because of a misunderstanding, they're putting words in my mouth or something like that, I can end up making it worse by trying to defend myself and responding. It's easy to make things worse when you offend somebody. I must pay attention to my own emotions, and I must take it to God in prayer. Because in prayer, God will reveal to me how I should respond to this individual, how I should display the character of Christ in this situation. Whenever you recognize, this is how my flesh wants to respond, with rage, all caps, That's actually a good thing because you recognize when it's your fleshly nature that is trying to rise up and you know if my flesh wants me to respond this way, then the spirit wants me to respond the opposite way. When you know how you want want to respond in the flesh, then go to God and ask him, how do I model the character of Christ in this offense? 
because the spirit gives life, the flesh longs to destroy. And I guarantee you there's nothing the enemy would like better than for Friendship Church to tear itself apart through offense. The second thing to remember is, number two, don't let pride get in the way. Don't let pride get in the way. Pride is all about getting my way, making my case. When somebody criticizes you, it's easy to assert your position, to correct their misunderstandings. Don't put words in my mouth. That's not what I said, or that's not how I said it, and prove that you're right. But that's just taking Satan's bait. Pride will always lead us to put ourselves above other people. Their offense may be thoroughly justified. We may have legitimately wronged them. And if we keep allowing pride to dictate how we respond, it will never result in a God-honoring conversation. Proverbs 16, verse 18. It reminds us, pride goes before destruction. Everybody says pride goeth before a fall. It doesn't. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is the enemy's language. That's his domain. It was his pride that got him cast out of heaven. The last thing we as Christians want to do is behave like him. If we're confronted by somebody, we have to pay attention to ourselves and not allow pride to rise up against them in that situation. It's hard to do. It's incredibly hard to do. Because we feel like we're justified in our actions. We wouldn't do it or say it if we didn't mean it. And we did it and we said it, and then somebody questions or criticizes it, and our natural response is, well, you're just easily offended or you're taking it the wrong way, or whatever, or we try to justify ourselves. We allow pride to rise up, and we can't let ourselves do that. In the moment, when somebody comes to you and expresses offense, the best thing you can do is say, let's go to God in prayer about this. Ask God, Father, how do I display Christ in this situation? How do I extend grace to others? How do I ensure their offense is addressed and I don't make it worse? 1 Peter 5.5, Peter wrote, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, that's such an unusual and descriptive uh, statement. Clothe yourselves with humility. Let humility be a garment that you wrap around yourselves. You clothe yourselves to protect yourselves from the elements. It's supposed to rain around noon today. There's a pretty good chance it's going to rain. I brought a raincoat. Every time I bring a raincoat, it never rains. But I'm still going to do it because when I don't bring it, it's going to rain on me. And so I wear this raincoat to protect myself from the element. I clothe myself in something that protects me. And humility is the same thing. It protects us. It protects our attitude. It protects ourselves from allowing pride to rise up. If I don't think I'm better than anybody else, 
then I'm allowing humility to keep me in a Christ-like attitude. But if I let pride rise up, and I don't clothe myself in humility, then I'm basically saying, I'm better than you. I'm more right than you. I'm more offended than you. And if I'm committed to the path of pride, then I am willfully putting myself in path of God's opposition. Don't let pride get in the way. I don't want God to oppose me. I want him to be with me. Number three, commit to forgiveness, not vengeance. Commit to forgiveness and not vengeance. Boy, we like revenge, don't we? I'm not saying I've ever slashed somebody's tires but I've thought about it. Revenge comes natural. We want, we we have a sense of justice, and that justice is God-given. We want the world to be right. When someone wrongs us, we want them to make it right. It's it's so interesting to me that, that we sometimes demand an apology from someone else, but it's harder for us to extend that apology. We need to be committed to forgiveness, not vengeance. Now, all of these are easier said than done. Trust me, I know. I've walked this out. Our flesh wants vengeance when somebody has wronged us. We want revenge. We want to hurt them like they hurt us. We want to loosen the lid on their salt shaker right before we hand it to them. We want to swap their sugar with salt before their morning coffee. This tastes weird. Yes, it does. We, we're, we're petty sometimes. We like revenge. We want somebody to get, get what we feel like they deserve. But when, you know, when we want to hurt them like they hurt us, it becomes a cycle of hurt feelings, and nobody ever wins. We just keep taking turns stabbing each other. Uh, last week I mentioned Dr. Emerson Egerich's four questions to answer Before you hit send on that email or that text message in response to an offense, his four questions, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it clear? When we respond to offense, it can be true. It can be necessary and it can be clear. But if it's not kind, don't hit send. Don't say it the way you planned on saying it. Rephrase what you want to say until it is true, necessary, clear, and kind. Does anybody want to carry around offense all the time? I think most people want to be at peace, but they don't know how to go about it. In our culture today, it's so easy to shoot off an email or make a comment on somebody's Facebook page that is cutting and insulting. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can actually delete things that you say on Facebook. So sometimes it feels really good to type out that comment, you're dumb, I don't like you. But you don't have to hit OK. Then you can just delete, and you feel better, but you didn't say it goal is not to say it but if you say something you can always go back and delete it that's a helpful tool because 
It's easy for us to be rude and insulting. It's easy for us to feel like that we get to shoot our mouths off at people. It's harder to do things biblically by going to that person privately and trying to have a God-honoring conversation about the matter. Our flesh wants vengeance, but our spirit knows that forgiveness is the Christian way to handle it. I talked about forgiveness when we covered it during our Sermon on the Mount series. But Jesus, uh, I'll just give a little refresher. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, Jesus addressed this issue. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Walking in forgiveness is critical to our relationship with not only fellow Christians, but with the Father. Jesus explicitly says that our ability to forgive one another is directly tied to the Father's ability to forgive us. If we won't forgive one another, he will not forgive us. When I was younger... I used to think that saying those three little words, I love you, was the hardest thing to say. What if I said it to somebody and they didn't feel the same way I felt? What if they responded with, I like you, or thank you? Not what I was looking for. What am I supposed to do then? I used to torment myself when I would uh, date a young lady and I, I really was falling head over heels and, and I felt like, oh, she could be the one. And, and, but I, I feel like I've got so much love in my heart. My heart's about to burst and I've got to say it. But what if she doesn't say it back? What if she doesn't feel the same way I do? Now that I'm older, I realize that saying those three words are easy compared with other three-word phrases. Phrases like, I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. Those are the harder phrases to say. And in my opinion, a mark of maturity is not saying, ha ha, I was right. A mark of maturity is not even saying, you were right. I believe A mark of maturity is saying, I was wrong. When we do, we allow healing to flow in that situation. It totally removes the teeth from vengeance and allows forgiveness to spring forth in that situation. Luke 17, the passage we covered at the beginning, Jesus said that if someone wrongs us and asks for forgiveness, we must forgive them. Even if they wrong us, as Jesus used the example, seven times in the same day, and they ask for forgiveness for each of those seven times, we must forgive them as many times as necessary. The word forgive in this passage really means to let it go. You have to act like The offense never took place. Disregard the offense and move on. Now, having said that, 
I understand there are certain situations in which forgiveness can occur, but reconciliation cannot. And certainly we're in, we understand there are abusive situations in a household, and you can forgive that person, but it doesn't mean you have to put yourself in a place where they can abuse you again. But I'm telling you, you cannot let yourself be put in an abusive situation and you can still allow God's healing to flow over you so that you forgive them and you let it go and you don't let it control you any longer. God longs for you to be free. And when we choose not to forgive someone who's offended us, we are imprisoning ourselves, And we hold the key to our own release, but we refuse to forgive them. And so we're holding ourselves captive through that unforgiveness. Forgiveness is not so that the offender can keep hurting us. Forgiveness is for us. It's keeping our hearts from getting hurt, wounded, bitter, angry, resentful, and filled with thoughts of revenge. Lastly, Actively work towards reconciliation. Actively work towards reconciliation. The word reconcile only appears ten times in the Bible. Nine out of ten of those are all in the New Testament. And most of those nine in the New Testament are all about being reconciled to God. What Jesus Christ did to reconcile us to God. But one of those references is dealing with interpersonal relationships. And it is also from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Jesus said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother And then come offer your gift. Reconciliation is so important that Jesus said it is critical to approaching God in worship the right way. Now the challenge sometimes that we have is that when we ask for somebody's forgiveness, they may not forgive us. Well, that's on them. If you approach them in humility and you ask for their forgiveness, you can't force them to forgive you. But you have asked, and it's their biblical responsibility to respond biblically. If your brother sins against you seven times in a day, you must forgive him. So that's on them. The goal is reconciliation, but there are some people that don't want to be reconciled. And so you have to just understand that. But our goal is to work towards reconciliation, to have a conversation in which we say, I apologize. Please accept my apology. Please forgive me for my offense, even if we legitimately or unknowingly offended them. Reconciliation takes work. It's difficult to have those tough conversations and allow God to heal both of you. It doesn't happen passively. Have you ever known that you needed to apologize to somebody, but you didn't want to apologize to them? So in prayer, in your Bible reading, you're coming across, God is just like popping all these scriptures about forgiveness, 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 reconciliation, be reconciled to one another. And you're just like, 
What, what, isn't there anything else to read in this book? Why does he keep popping up these scriptures? And then we, we pray and we say, but Lord, I forgive them. Or I ask you to help them forgive me. They know I'm sorry. I don't really think we have to bring it up. It might just create more wounds. I can tell you it probably won't. When someone comes to you in humility, apologetic, asking for your forgiveness, they're approaching you in the right way. And most likely, you might legitimately be offended by what they did. But in humility, as I said, it takes the teeth out of wanting revenge. At that point, we, that person has to decide whether they will or will not forgive the offender. But you've done everything you could to apologize. Reconciliation is not passive. It's active. We have to go above and beyond. We, we have to want to be reconciled to one another. But reconciliation is a beautiful thing. Restoring broken relationships creates joy. Joy in our lives and joy with the Father. Worship team, come on up. Would you please stand with me this morning? Jesus warned us that it is impossible for us to live this life free of offense. Offense is bound to happen. So I'm giving you the heads up. If you have lived your entire life and nobody has ever offended you, where have you been and what have you been doing? And can I have a life like that? But it's going to happen. We're going to offend one another or somebody's going to offend us. We're going to offend them. The enemy has laid snares for us. If we're not guarding what we say and what we do, the enemy is going to jump on that and try to use that to tear your relationships, your marriage, your friendships, your church, your community, tear it apart. And it's easy for us to offend somebody through our pride. We cannot let the enemy tear us apart. We cannot let the enemy tear our relationships and our marriages apart. We can't allow the enemy to tear our church apart. We have to pay attention to our own emotions and our own feelings be aware when we're operating in the flesh and when we're operating in the spirit. We have to make sure that we're not let, letting pride get in the way. I guarantee you when somebody offends you, your first response is typically, typically going to be guided by pride. Urgh, anger. I'm going to tell them what I think when I write a strongly worded you know, email or text message, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot my mouth off, and I'm going to say something, and it's just going to make it worse. We have to make sure we don't let pride get in the way. We have to commit to forgiveness and not revenge. We have to actively pursue reconciliation. That is God-honoring behavior. That is loving God and loving our neighbor in action. Psalm 133 it says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Have you ever been to a church that you could walk in and you could feel the tension, feel the division, feel the contention and 
And it was just, you know, if you couldn't feel it spiritually, you sensed it certainly uh, physically in the place. The end of the psalm says that when God's people are in unity, the Lord has commanded a blessing of life forevermore over the people. It's wonderful to be in unity together. Acts chapter 2, the disciples of Christ were all together physically and they were in unity spiritually. And the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and the world has never been the same. That's our desire as well. For God to be glorified in all that we do, that He is glorified in our families and glorified in our work, glorified in our church, glorified in the reconciliation and the restoration of relationships. God has given us amazing grace. And we have the responsibility to extend that grace to one another. When we do, the chains of the enemy fall right off. All the plans and snares of the enemy, we can see them for what they are. And he loses all of his power. He has no power over us. And when we commit to forgiveness and reconciliation, we don't allow him to hold us down or hold us back any longer.